Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Amernesto Sambrano. Today's article is by Otessa Moshvig from the August 2022 edition of GQ. Brad Pitt's Wildest Dreams, Part 2. Please note, this is a men's magazine, and as such, may include offensive topics or language. His Hollywood origin story is famous. He arrived in town in his Datsun, having left the University of Missouri two credits short of his degree. He'd been studying journalism, hoping to one day become an art director, and though those vague aspirations quickly faded, certain proclivities remained. He's always loved to make things, hold things, feel their quality and texture. It's a passion he first developed in his junior high shop class, and he tells me, one that defines him still. I'm one of those creatures that speaks through art, Pitt explains. I just want to always make. If I'm not making, I'm dying in some way. Of course, Pitt has also made more than merely movies, sculpture, furniture, homes. As his friend Spike Jones, the filmmaker, recalls, sometimes Pitt makes music too. The other day he came over obsessing over the song Unconditional Eye, Lookout Kid, that Arcade Fire released two days earlier, and we sat and listened to it and played guitar and sang along to it a dozen times just to get to experience it inside out. I could feel the song spilling out of him. As we're talking in his living room, Pitt slips away for a moment and then reappears, looming over the couch on which I sit. He slaps two incredibly heavy candlesticks into my open palms. I understand that these are his creations. Over the pandemic, he learned ceramics. The candlesticks are painted black and gold and are very handsome. That's porcelain, he says. Everything I read, porcelain's about being thin so that light penetrates, the thinner you get. It's a cardinal sin to make it thick. And yet that's what Pitt has done, and he's succeeded. What I love is the heft, like a Leica camera or a quality watch. You could dump this in the dirt and someone could dig it up 2,000 years later because it's been under a volcanic reaction. Perhaps the most renowned of Pitt's creative sidelines is the wine that he's been producing at his estate in Provence, Chateau Miraval. In 2008, he and Jolie bought the thousand-acre property, which produces a world-class rosé that has become a multi-million dollar business. In 2014, the two were married there. More recently, the estate popped up in the press when Jolie sold her stake in the business. Amid the legal wrangling that followed, Pitt received an interesting bit of information about the property. He tells me that he was approached a few years ago by a man who explained to him that the chateau was supposedly home to another fortune, millions of dollars worth of gold that one of the estate's medieval owners had taken from the Levant during the Crusades and buried on the grounds. I got obsessed, Pitt says. Like for a year, this was all I could think about, just the excitement of it all. He bought radar equipment and scoured his property. Maybe it has something to do with where I grew up, because in the Ozark Mountains, there were always stories of hidden caches of gold. Of course, no treasure was unearthed. Pitt says the man who'd approached him was ultimately seeking money for some kind of radar company, an investment opportunity, he was told. The whole thing went nowhere, and Pitt was left feeling a little surprised that he'd let himself believe in the idea. The entire experience was, he says, pretty foolish in the end. It was just the hunt that was exciting. As he finishes the story, Pitt offers me a nicotine mint. He chews them mindlessly. He explains that he quit smoking during the pandemic after realizing that simply cutting back on cigarettes wasn't going to suffice. He had to cut them out. I don't have that ability to do just one or two a day, he says. It's not in my makeup. I'm all in, and I'm going to drive into the ground. I've lost my privileges. 
It's one of several radical changes he's made to his health over the past few years. After Jolie filed for divorce in 2016, he got sober and spent a year and a half attending Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a really cool men's group here that was really private and selective, so it was safe, he says, because I'd seen things of other people who had been recorded while they were spilling their guts, and that's just atrocious to me. When Pitt talks about the past, he's got a Buddhist style of detachment, a calm kind of self-inquiry. He's also very willing to admit the appeal of his old vices, thinking back to the days when he'd have a cigarette, in the morning, with the coffee, just delicious. In Pitt's mind, there are certain people who can do that all their life and get away with it. Indestructible types like David Hockney, the British painter. Pitt has met him on a couple of occasions. He's still chaining, the hardcore English way. It looks great. Pitt smiles ruefully. I don't think I have that. I'm just at that age when nothing good comes from it. Pitt has talked in the past about a curious problem he has in social settings, especially at parties. He struggles to remember new people, to recognize their faces, and he fears it's led to a certain impression of him, that he's remote and aloof, inaccessible, self-absorbed. But the truth is, he wants to remember the people he meets, and he's ashamed that he can't. He's never been officially diagnosed, but thinks he may suffer from a specific condition, prosopagnosia, an inability to recognize people's faces that's otherwise known as face blindness. When I tell him that my husband seems to suffer from this as well, Pitt goes wild. Nobody believes me, he cries. I want to meet another. He's making uncannily good eye contact as he says this, and it's at this point that I realize Brad Pitt is definitely not aloof or reserved. The truth is, sitting with him is an altogether different experience. He's affable and charming in all the ways you might hope, but his charisma goes deeper. This is a man who seems deeply committed to forging meaningful connections, to probing life's existential quandaries and hearing your personal stories. He's the opposite of a guy who'd snub you at a party. He's the guy who wants to see your soul. He's also a guy who, hidden under his shirt, has a line from a roomy poem inked across his right bicep. There exists a field beyond all notions of right and wrong. I will meet you there. It's a deeply romantic idea, but does it also hint at a certain solitude? I always felt very alone in my life, he explains. Alone growing up as a kid. Alone even out here. And it's not really till recently that I have had a greater embrace of my friends and family. What's that line? It was either Rilke or Einstein, believe it or not. But it was something about when you can walk with the paradox. When you carry real pain and real joy simultaneously. This is maturity. This is growth. Then he turns his lens on me. I wanted to ask you, he says, why the fuck are we here? What's beyond? Because I gather that you believe in something beyond. Do you feel trapped here? In this body and in this environment? In response, I recite another roomy poem. I'm like a bird from another continent, sitting in this aviary. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. Insane to think I am quoting a 13th century Persian poet to a movie star in L.A. in 2022, but I think it goes over well. I tell him that my so-called aviary isn't too bad. I'm lucky, but while I'm here on Earth, I say, I'm a bit hypersensitive to things, like music. What is that about? Pitt asks, because music fills me with so much joy. I think joy's been a newer discovery, later in life. I was always moving with the currents, drifting in a way, and onto the next. I think I spent years with a low-grade depression, and it's not until coming to terms with that, trying to embrace all sides of self, the beauty and the ugly, that I've been able to catch those moments of joy. My heart just might be broken, I tell him. So when I feel things, when my heart is activated, it hurts. I think all hearts are broken, he says. 
There's a bit of dad in his voice. It sounds like sincere care and wisdom, as if I'm talking to a guy on a long-distance train ride who is curious and kind and has all the time in the world to let me try to say what I mean. He's always on a quest for meaning, he tells me. By way of explanation, he brings up a poem by Rilke. He's describing this bust of Apollo, and he's talking about the craftsmanship, and then suddenly out of nowhere is this line, You must change your life. You know it? Oh, it gives me chills. Pitt polishes off his bottle of water and looks past me, seemingly lost in thought. Silence is especially dramatic when Brad Pitt is creating it. Suddenly, he's scrolling through photos on his iPhone. The bust of Apollo made him think about the L.A.-based artist Charles Ray, perhaps the most influential sculptor working today. And, it turns out, a mutual acquaintance of ours. Pitt tells me he recently saw an exhibition of Ray's work at the Penault Collection in Paris. He made this Christ out of paper, Pitt says showing me a photo on his phone, and the way the light catches it is something unbelievable. Also, it's not on the wall, and it's not on the cross, although he's crucified. He's floating. It's like he's free of it. It's just so stunning. See how it floats in the shadow on the wall? The paper Christ that Pitt is talking about is a study after 17th century Italian sculptor Alessandro Algardi's Corpus Christi, which was originally cast in silver for Pope Innocent X. Ray created the Christ form by molding wet paper pulp and considers the piece to be a kind of drawing rather than a sculpture. Pitt zooms in on details to show me the beauty of the work. See the way the light bounces off it? It's still got the movement of the wind, and the nail holes are there. Just beautiful. Later, Ray explains to me his ambitions for the sculpture. I thought that if I extended the structure of what paper could actually do, and push its material structure and scale to a limit where it could barely hold together, that I might find divinity in my endeavor. Like Ray... Pitt seems interested in finding something sacred in the making of things, but he hesitates to call himself an artist. His personal pursuit of ceramics isn't an art form, he tells me, but a solo, very quiet, very tactile kind of sport. I think this is his Ozarkian humility coming through. He's obviously an artist. He lives like one, works like one, ruminates like one, suffers and aspires like one, and thinks deeply about what it means to be one. Art is something inexplicable, he says. Art is something that gives you goosebumps, that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck, that brings a tear to the eye. Maybe it's because someone understood before you, you're not alone. A few days after we meet at his house, Pitt sends me an email, composed, he tells me, just after a six-hour oral surgery, in which he elaborates on the answers he gave in our interview. The email is broken down into three categories, summation, clarification, rumination. And he explains, as if to a friend, Something he has learned about effective communication in a relationship, emphasizing that a healthy self begins with taking radical accountability. Is Brad Pitt psychic, I wonder, or is it obvious that I need advice in this area? Earlier in the day, my husband confronted me about this very issue of accountability, claiming that I deflect critical feedback as though I'm made of glass. I'm afraid to see myself clearly sometimes, it's true. Then I remember Pitt's comforting half-smile. All our hearts are broken, he said. I also think back to Pitt's dreams about stalkers coming out of the darkness to stab him, and about how he learned to control those dreams by simply asking why. That inquisitive side of him has come into clearer focus now, his need to excavate life's most complex truths. I write back, asking what he interprets these dreams to mean. A few days later, he offers this explanation. My interpretation of the stabbing dreams were on the surface about fears, feeling unsafe, completely alone, but beneath it all, they mostly seem to be about buried needs, 
those aspects of self that weren't allowed to bloom as a child, like healthy anger, individuality, or especially a voice. It takes courage to foray back into a nightmare and unearth the pains of one's childhood, and to name them. And it takes skill to simultaneously stand in the place of both your ghost and your killer in order to play out the drama between them. There's something useful in Pitt's example here. His ability to be two things at once. His willingness to carry the paradox of being human. When Pitt and I were sitting together by the fire, he said something profound. I am a murderer. I am a lover. I have the capacity for great empathy, and I can devolve into pettiness. One might say that in dreams we can be anyone, feel anything, go anywhere. We are like actors in a movie of our own making, and we watch the film alone at night, in the dark. If we truly want to understand ourselves, we ought to take notes. That brings us to the end of today's article, Brad Pitt's Wildest Dreams, Part 2. If you want to learn more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us by clicking on any of the social media links at the top of our web pages. If you like what you see or hear, please click the like button. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind, low vision, and print-impaired listeners. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Ernesto Sambrano, and I'll be back soon with another article. Thanks for listening.